You're listening to Women Making Waves. So this interview coming up is one that we both did, didn't we? We did indeed. And we had such a really lovely time talking to Anita Corbin, very, very distinguished photographer. And she has just produced the most amazing book. This is a culmination of an exhibition that she started. Mm. And it's taken her 10 years, 10 years in the making. Mm. And she decided that she was going to find first women. And what that means is women who are firsts in their field. So it might be the first woman speaker of the House of Commons, for example. She approached all of these women and she took the most amazing photographs of them and turned that into an exhibition. So I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we enjoyed making it. That's Linda Ness and I, Susie Thorpe, talking to Anita Corbin. Yes, it was my idea, really, was to capture these ordinary women who've become, you know, first in their field, trailblazers, absolute pioneers, but to see them as women still. And in a way, the first is not the first most important thing for me. It's about their, their sort of womanhood and who they are as women. We are delighted to be joined by renowned photographer Anita Corbin, who's been in the news again over the past few months because of her fantastic First Woman exhibition, which features 100 women who've been first in their field of achievement. In fact, one of our previous women making waves, Dr Jean Venables, was one of the 100 women. The exhibition was launched in 2018 to celebrate 100 years since women over 30 were given the vote and was 10 years in the making. Anita also has another exhibition on tour, Visible Girls Revisited, which is also really exciting. Anita, thank you very much for joining us on Women Making Waves. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Can we go back to the beginning? How did you first become interested in photography? I started photography when I was very young, probably around about six or seven years old. I had first-hand experience of being with a photographer because my father was a horticultural photographer. And I often got roped into holding the props like the onions or the roses (laughs) or the bits of turf that he would photograph in a style that showed you how to do things. But I did have an ancestral connection to photography as well. And my great uncle, who I never met, actually headed up the Kodak factory in Bombay at the turn of the 1900s. And you went on to the Royal College of Art to study photography there. Was that a fun experience? Yeah, I mean, I went first of all to the Polytechnic of Central London for three years, which is when I did the Visible Girls um, series, which was at the time very unusual to see girls in subcultures. And I was determined as a young soft punk of 22 to show the world what we were doing and what kind of identity we were creating for ourselves. All of the visible girls portraits are double portraits and so it's a picture of me and her or or her and her friend or her and her sister or her and her lover but then I'm the third part of the triangle. So that was really when I began to be totally obsessed with portraiture and creating a communication with imagery. I was going to ask you about that 
were you just running into people, literally seeing somebody and going, oh, I really like the look of them, want to take a photograph of them? Or was it more contrived? Well, I had to light every subject because I was really keen to get the colours perfect. Because in the 80, early 80s, if you remember, there was a lot of bright colours around and I didn't want to photograph. It would have been much easier if I just shot on black and white film and pushed it. Uh, you know, it was a bit of a hard task, but I wanted to create a colourful array of portraits as colourful as the characters in the shot so I took with me portable flash I shot it all on slow colour negative film I didn't use a tripod but it was in a way they were set up but they weren't pre-organised so I'd go out to the clubs and the pubs and, and you know go on a tube and travel around London to places that I'd not been to before. Sometimes I had a friend inside that I could, you know, say I'm going to meet so-and-so, but often it was just to blag my way past the doorman <laughs> and, and, you know, say, oh, I've come to take photos of the girls. And that, that at the time was totally unheard of. Yeah. So there weren't cameras inside these clubs, partly because it was so dark, technically very difficult. Why was it girls? Was it sort of on the back of the 70s feminism that you were... Yeah, I was a young feminist. I was very much about talking the talk, walking the walk. If you're going to be a feminist or if you're going to support women's liberation, then I felt I needed to create something that would support that and to inspire other women to see an opportunity to identify with the young women that were punks or mods or rockabillies or skinheads or young lesbians. So it was really almost like a catalogue of who you could be that I wanted to create. And, you know, I was looking for my identity as well as a photographer, as a young woman. So it just really worked very well. And being an only child, I think, I often felt that I used the camera to reach out to make friendships to have a communication with people, which obviously I didn't have any practice of that as a child, really, in a sense. I had friends, of course, but there was no sort of banter at home. And the backgrounds as well in those photographs are great because they're rough and ready. They almost look like a lot of them would be done in loos. Yes, lots of them are done in loos, <laughs> partly to get away from the boys because I found that the girls were much more relaxed when they were just girls around and they would be much more confident in front of the camera, surprisingly, because nobody was watching them or nobody was making comment. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of them, probably about 40% are in toilets, actually. Yeah. And, you know, most of them are quite grotty toilets. Yeah, I wondered if that was deliberate. And it's interesting that you're saying the reason was to get them in an environment where they were actually just themselves. Yes, yeah. And then, you know, they were very much about their, their friendships as girls. The bond between the girls is just as important as the subculture, really. I mean, the story is about young women making friends and becoming independent and having a bit of pocket money and being able to go out. I mean, the youngest is 13 in the shots and the oldest is 24. But we were all out and about on tubes and buses. I was travelling around on my own, aged eight, around London. Yeah, you know. different days. So now we go on to The Visible Girls Revisited. Did you think 30 years later you were going to do this? I, I mean, I get the impression that's going to be a no, but I'm not sure with you. Maybe it was <laughs> going to be a yes. Um, I didn't have, obviously, when I was taking the pictures, and they did travel around the country for 25 years to youth clubs and schools and colleges with a community arts-based uh, cockpit arts, it was called. So eventually the laminated set ended up in the South Bank University as a, um, a springboard for the first year degree. And then eventually I now have it back in my possession. So nearly 40 years later, I've got the original set and it has a few tales to tell, definitely. <laughs> but I think when the picture started to pop up on Facebook about five or six years ago and people started commenting on them, 
I thought there is an opportunity now with social media uh, being so widespread that I can reach out to the girls because I was always interested to know where they ended up and what happened to them. And I tried 10 years after I'd taken the original shots, but of course then there was no internet. 1991, no internet, no mobile phones. I had the phone numbers, but obviously most people had moved on by then. Um, and there just wasn't the, the social media. I mean, there was no way of finding a stranger in the world like you can now. Yeah. And I mean, they're all over the world. Australia, New Mexico, Spain, Slovenia, France. They're, that's the ones that I've found so far. Yeah. Um, so far. Yeah, so, so this is an ongoing project. Yes. This, is, this is revisited. And as soon as you make up a collection, that you're then able to exhibit it. That's yeah, what I mean, you it's, want to it's do. touring the country. Every time we open, we usually find a new visible girl, if you like, a new revisited visible girl. And the ones in Bury St Edmunds, some of the Rasters were recognised, which is great because I went to a club outside of London to photograph young Raster women. And um, I have got contact with a few of them, but now I might be able to, you know, actually find the rest of them. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And the thing that I really noticed that amused me was in the older photographs of these women, the younger versions, a lot of them looked quite... Not tense, but they're quite serious. In the older photographs, they're much more comfortable in their own skin, or that's what it looks like to me. They're smiling. They're not trying to be something. With the yeah, with the revisited series, I do try and recreate the image if I can. So the pose as close as possible, the location if possible, because a lot of them obviously have been demolished, you know, and or created like a toilet now is a, a very nice designer flat. But I think. The original shots in the early 80, 80, 81, they were taken in a nine-month period, a very short period of photographing. The girls were given licence to be themselves and because partly because I was focusing on just girls, it was a real kudos for them because the boys obviously all were quite keen to be in the photographs, but they felt it elevated their status within the group as girls and, of course, that was part of my motivation as well to focus on just the girls. And I think the ones, the modern day, the revisited series, some of them have you know, got them to look maybe a bit more how they did in the 80s. And a couple of the girls, or the women now, have said, oh, you know, I look too tough. I look... When they're not, because now they've you know mellowed with age and they've they've got experiences that have changed them. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to kind of capture that spark still to show that even though they're in their fifties and sixties, we still can be quite wild. At that time, you once you left college, you started working for the Sunday Times and uh, yeah. the Observer magazines and loads of other magazines as well as a freelance photographer. Yeah, the, it was a really kind of very lucky time to become a photographer in the, uh, in the mid-80s, early 80s. So I won a, a photographic scholarship with the Sunday Times magazine that was sponsored by Nikon um, in 81, uh, just at the same time as doing The Visible Girls. And then I got a place at the Royal College, as you mentioned. So I was working freelance all the time I was studying for my MA. And my MA project was in West Sumatra. And I went to photograph a matrilineal society called the Manankabao. So it was still along the same lines around sort of empowering images of women, but it was a completely different culture, Muslim culture, and a matrilineal system. And I couldn't speak Indonesian till I got there. I had to learn crash course, you know. So I think I was always very much about taking myself to the edge creatively. But working freelance as well, 
uh, it was great because I was working with the top designers and the top art directors and editors. I couldn't really have had a better launch to my career. Um, you know, the, the competition was judged by Don McCullen, and I went to you know the prize-winning lunch was with him and the picture editor and the art director of the Sunday Times. So you know it was very fortunate, good timing on my part. I feel to become a freelance photographer. You sound as if you really didn't encounter any challenges or backlash. Do you encounter any sexism? In the photography world, depending on which sector you go in, so in the press world, I think it's very different. I was never a press photographer. I was always an editorial portrait photographer. So there was always an element of story that was like pre-written or had been researched. So I was reading the piece, reading the, the copy, maybe even going with a journalist. It was very much a collaboration of the two of us. Often it was contradictory. I didn't necessarily agree with the writer. So then I had an opportunity as a photographer to create a visual reference point that was perhaps in, not conflict, but at a different angle to the writing, which I felt was really important because maybe I hadn't seen the same story. But I don't really encounter sexism per se, but I did get sent to do a lot of stories that were around families, children, women's issues, softer stories, and where you had to have a bit more sensitivity and a bit more empathy with the individual. We're holding this beautiful book that's Gorgeous. called Anita Corbin, 100 First Women Portraits, which we both really want to talk about with you. It's just got the most amazing women. But yeah. tell us how you came about this. What instigated this wonderful subject? Yes, the idea of doing this. Well, I was really approaching my 50th birthday over 10 years ago now. I'm 60. My children were 13, 14, 15, something like that, 13 maybe, got twins. They were starting to make their own way in the world. I suppose subconsciously I set myself a bit of a project thinking, how am I going to handle this empty nesting? And I had the idea overnight, near enough overnight, to capture the 100-year celebration of the vote in a visual way. And I kept hearing about first women on the radio or in the news. And then the next day, there'd be no more reference to them. And you think, well, who was that? How am I going to find out about her? And of course, even 10 years ago, the internet wasn't that good. You know, now it's amazing what you can find out. And I said, well, if I put them all together as an exhibition, didn't really think I was going to do a book at that point. I thought if I did an exhibition, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to have a hundred portraits of first women in one room? What would that feel like? What inspiration would that give to the next generation or any generation, actually? And we've had, you know, where the exhibitions have been on, it's been absolutely across the board, all ages, all, you know, all sex, basically enjoying it. And at the very first exhibition, we actually had to go out and buy tissues because people were becoming overwhelmed by the power of the imagery. How come we never had this before? So, yes, yeah, so going back to the... 2008, I thought, I want to get Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. She's the first, you know, because whether you loved her or hated her, you know, she was the first prime minister, oh, the first woman prime minister. And it was significant, you know, and I was starting out as a photographer, really, when she was in power. So I tried to get in touch with her several different ways, seven different ways through personal contacts and no reply ever. So it was quite frustrating at the beginning, actually. And I thought, well, nobody knows who I am. Why would they say yes? And then I wrote to Baroness Boothroyd and immediately she wrote back. And immediately she said, call this number on so-and-so day. You know, let's make a date. And I was like, oh, my goodness. 
you know, she doesn't know who I am. She just gets it. She gets the idea. And it's a very simple idea. First women, first woman. And she's obviously the first woman to be Speaker of the House of Commons. And she's been the most wonderful support. I, when I met to photograph her, she was number four in the, in the series. So very early on in the piece. And I did actually propose to her on my knee on the terrace underneath Big Ben and asked her if she would be my patron. And she was so lovely and gracious. And she said, yes, yes, of course, you know, as long as it doesn't make too much work I'd love to do that and that really gave me the confidence to go forward and to be able to say Baroness Boothroyd is my patron Mm -hmm. so therefore a lot more subjects would suddenly become interested and understand the gravity of the project so I was so grateful to Baroness Boothroyd yeah everyone seems to love her actually don't they yes yes she's 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 very special You've got a hundred women here, but I'm sure there's thousands of women more that you want to do. Is this going to be an ongoing project? I think the thing with the hundred first women, it was a goal. And my main focus really was a diversity of women from across the UK. So I wanted to make sure it was covering the whole of the UK, covering the whole, all the subjects, you know, from engineering to musicianship to everything. So it's a very broad based project so you've got blacksmiths you've got beatboxers you've got cricketers you know it's it's appeals to everybody everybody can find one first woman that they really get and really admire but I'd love to keep shooting first women I think it's a really important part of our history as an archive and I've got several on the list and at every exhibition we ask for the next 100 to be nominated but uh, sadly I need to find some backing because really I've done the first book and exhibition completely self-funded. A few, I had some small donations and a small sponsorships, but nothing to the scale of which I need really. So I can't afford to remortgage my house again, which is what I had to do. Last year, yeah, dedicated creative. Fortunately, my husband's also a creative, so he understood. (laughs) But I'd love to be able to find a backer that would enable me to do a dozen a year, then we could build that for as long as I can hold a camera. But it defies culture, doesn't it? It defies how women see women and how men see women. And that's what I love about the book, that you're putting real women doing extraordinary things. Yes, it was my idea really was to capture these ordinary women who've become first in their field, trailblazers, absolute pioneers, but to see them as women still. And in a way, the first is not the first most important thing for me. It's about their their sort of womanhood and who they are as women. You know, it's about actually creating a new reality so that we don't think, oh, she looks a bit weird. She's got a bomb suit on. You know, we actually think, of course, why wouldn't she have a bomb suit on? why not? And the opening of the exhibition, it just looked amazing. And a lot of these women were seen having their own photographs taken with their cameras, standing next to their own portrait, and they just looked delighted. Yeah, it was a real buzz. There were 65 first women there out of 100 to the opening night and about 20 relatives of sadly the five deceased first women. And so it was very poignant because the women that are no longer with us, it's a lasting legacy of what they've achieved and for the children and for their relatives. I found a lot of people came to the exhibition to sort of pay homage to their relatives. But the opening night was just incredible. I mean, we thought we were going to have about 250 people and in the end it was nearly 400. And because it's the Royal College where I went, we had all of the ground floor at the Dyson Gallery, so it's huge space, which it needed because the pictures are huge. They are a meet over a meter high and wow. seven fifty wide, and no glazing. Just a frame, a simple black frame, 
no mount, no fuss. So you're very much in contact with your subject. And that's what I always wanted from the very start. How it looked was very important, even though, of course, that size print is a huge cost. <laughs> and I, you know, I should probably have thought a bit more about the budget. <laughs> but it was a moment which I just thought, no, it's got to be done properly to create that impact as well. And can I just ask you, you've photographed some interesting people through your time. People like Bob Hoskins, Jolie Richardson, Peter O'Toole, Alan Bennett, Bono and Mika Paris. Are they any different from any other people that you you photograph? Are they all the same? Do they treat you the same? Do you treat them the same? Um, Well, celebrities are are quite often quite hard to wrangle because they often have a lot of um, gatekeepers around them. It's, it's often the hardest thing is getting through that layer. But once you get through the layer and you meet, like, you know, went to Ireland to photograph you two and went out for a drink with Bono and Adam, you know, this is talking 30 years ago, so it's quite a long time ago. Uh, yeah, they, they're very, you know, they were very natural. They were very young at the time. Peter O'Toole was a bit harder to wrangle. I think I had to <laughs> wait about 48 hours for him on a film set. But, you know, once I'd got to him, he was a total star. And every shot looked incredible. I think that's the thing with the professionals. I mean, Bob Hoskin, every exposure was different expression-wise. So professional. You know, they know how to perform in front of the camera. Um, You haven't got that necessarily that shyness, but sometimes you can't get to the real person. So it's often the quirky shot or the shot at the end of the shoot where they've relaxed a bit that that is the one that works. Well, it's been an amazing thing to talk to you today. It has. It's been absolutely brilliant, Anita. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Anita Corbin. And that was Susie Thorpe and me, Linda Ness, talking to Anita Corbin.